1: My name is Katie, and I am Austin's wife, and I'm going to be bringing the message this morning. We honestly, we have a really busy morning already. It's um, it's been great, but we have a lot to go through. And so we're just going to jump right in. We are in a series called Body and Blood. And it's been a series on communion where Austin's really talked about uh, the lifestyle of communion and he expanded on prayer and just our union with Christ and relationship with Christ. And then last week he kind of shifted gears and and went to the sacrament of communion. And uh, if you missed that message, definitely go back and listen to it because it was really uh, exactly what we should be thinking when we take communion individually. So um, he talked about the power of memory and the power of hope and the power of presence. And it was so good. And so if you didn't listen to it, definitely do. And then this morning we are talking about the corporate side of communion and what it means to take communion as a body of Christ. And so we've, we've talked about what we can think about individually as we take communion. And now we're going to talk about, about what we should be thinking corporately as we take communion. We're going to talk about that because if we look in Scripture, it almost feels like it's implied that we're going to be taking it together, right? So we have the um, Lord's Supper, and Jesus is with his disciples when he tells them about it. And we have the Marriage Supper of the Lamb coming, right? Where you best believe there's going to be a lot of people. And we have the church in Acts that broke bread frequently together, And so it almost feels implied, not that you can't take it on your own, but that it's meant to be something that we take together. It's not just designed to be beneficial for the individual, but it's beneficial for our body and for the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the big C church, right? We're not talking about Good Shepherd or the church in northern Colorado or in America, but we're talking about the church that is Jesus Bride. Right, that it it spans the world, it spans through time. We're connected to the people that have lived thousands of years before us, and we're connected to the people that will live a thousand years after we're gone. That is the body of Christ. I love when missionaries come and we're able to take our eyes off of just Loveland, Colorado and Good Shepherd, and we see that the gospel is going forth. In, in America and in to the ends of the world. And it's not just about us. It's so good to have those reminders. And so taking communion can look a variety of different ways. It might be taking communion with your family or with your small group or with, you know, of course, we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the church gathering. It might be that you're traveling and you visit a church and you're taking it with people that you have never met and that you'll never see again. However you find yourself taking communion, I think there's something special that happens when we do it together. I kind of wonder if we've lost some of the specialness of the, the corporate side of it because we've got our individual little cups, right? We've got our t- in, like single person size wafer that's like styrofoam and it's kind of blah, right? Right? <laughs> Who remembers the glory days of the single loaf of French bread, right? That we all stood in line, and I just remember as a kid just being like, oh, I hope it just all comes out in one chunk, and I just get the middle of it, and it's so good, right? so fluffy and delicious, and that's just not what we do anymore, and we're probably not going to go back to that, and I don't know if Good Shepherd ever did this, but we're probably not going to drink from the same cup, right? There's people that do that, and it's not exactly COVID-friendly. I don't think we're going to be doing that, but you can see how there is this imagery of we're all taking from the same body, and we're all drinking from the same cup. And so I wonder if we've lost a little bit of that. And even I wonder if we've lost a little bit of that in salvation just in general, where we're so grateful for the individual salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. But what about the grand narrative of scripture that talks about the people that he saved? And I love that Austin said a couple weeks ago, salvation calls us to a people. It's not just about us. And so if I could have us do anything this morning and focus our minds and hearts on anything, it would be that there's something bigger than just ourselves. There's something bigger than taking communion just for each individual person. Does that sound okay? Okay. We're going to open up to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. Austin touched on this last week, but we're going to look at it through this other lens. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body, I'm sorry, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So again, we have this a little bit better visual example of the body, okay? And, And Jesus broke it. And I loved, and as I was studying about this verse in particular in First Corinthians, it talks about the many grains of wheat that go into this, the, the DNA that is in this uh, loaf. And then we split it and we give it to all the members and we take it. And in that, it's uniting us. We all are partaking of the one loaf, uniting us, tying us together, and bringing us as one body. And so my first point this morning as we look at corporate communion is that unity is our goal. Unity is the goal. It's very clear in scripture that God loves unity in the body. He commands blessing where there is unity. And there's so many verses we could turn to, but I love the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What better way to keep in mind and have one mind collectively on our one Lord and one faith and one baptism than through communion? Communion focuses our mind and our heart on Jesus, our one thing, our main thing. Amen? There are so many things that can divide us, especially this day and age. Gosh, it feels like it's maybe the worst it's ever been where we can get lost in the weeds on money and COVID and um, race and uh, even the, the theology that we kind of hold open-handed, right? The, the non-essentials, even the fact that I'm up here is considered one of those things, right? And yet we focus our mind and our hearts on Jesus and say, that's what matters when we come to the communion table. And so I think God has created communion as this tool and this habit and this ritual that even though we might be going on all of these different paths on different things, it frequently is bringing us back and uniting us and reminding us of what matters the most. Austin and I were talking about this this week, and just how it must be just heartbreaking to the Lord when his children are fighting and there's division, right? We, as parents, we feel that um, when our kids are fighting, and we were talking about how there's like 200 denominations of Christianity in America, and all of those, for the most part, are on disagreements on how we should do things. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. Of course, we need to care about good theology and we need to um, prioritize that. But I just wonder if, if that division has broken the heart of God. The verse in Ephesians says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That feels active to me. Feels like we have to pursue it. We have to chase after it. Unity is not the default. I believe if we sit back and watch, uh, division will be the default. And so unity is the goal. It's not enough to just have a goal, though, right? I think about the big game today. (laughs) I think it's stupid that I have to say it that way. Um, And I'm going to be honest that I I don't really care who wins the Bengals. The Rams, right? OK. Um, I, I don't really care. I love food and I love friends, and that's why I will be participating. But if you think about, you know, all the NFL teams have the goal of going to the Super Bowl. So it's not that we're just our goals, right? We've, not everyone achieves those goals. We have to have systems in place to reach them. We are not the goals that we have. We are what we do. And so, if unity is the goal, how are we going to get there? I believe humility is our method. Humility is the method. Humility is not our favorite thing in America, probably, right? We don't like the process of being humbled. And maybe that's not just an American thing. That's maybe just a humanity thing. But we love to think of ourselves as the good guys, as the smart ones, at the best at X, Y, and Z. We love to think of ourselves as deserving of good. And humbling moments kind of ruin that perspective for us, right? I grew up here in Loveland, Colorado, and I went to Mountain View High School. And uh, yeah, uh, Mountain Lions, right? Um, (laughs) Mascots are not my thing. (laughs) Um, But I had Miss Langford for my ninth grade civics. Anybody else have Miss Langford? She's kind of a local teaching legend, we were saying. She's got like a Facebook fan page, so look her up sometime. But she was so good. She was so engaging, so challenging, and I learned so much from her. But she was also a little scary. Like, she really was. Really intimidating. And so I had been homeschooled for eight years before that. And I'm sitting in my ninth grade civics class, and we're talking about the executive branch of government. And she goes, okay, just call it out. Who knows what impeachment means? And I said, removed? I don't know why I said anything. But she said, she quiets everyone down and says, Katie, say it louder. And I said, removed? And she goes, that is what every stupid American thinks. (laughs) And I just sat down in my chair. I'm sure I turned bright red, just completely humbled, right? It's brutal. In case you're wondering, it means to put to trial. It does not mean removed. So I learned that and I will never forget it. (laughs) But it's not fun to be humbled. It's not fun to have this reality check of where we actually stand, right? Right? And yet communion is the great humbler of our soul. And it's not in an embarrassing way or a shame-filled way or anything like that, but it's just the truth and our reality that we could not save ourselves. There's no pride allowed at the communion table. No pride of theology or of works or of ministry it doesn't matter. That all takes a backseat to Jesus because none of that could have saved us. Jesus alone can save us. And so we come to the communion table realizing we've all fallen short and we need him. I love this story found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll kind of give you some background while you turn there. David is king of Israel and Saul was king before him. They had a bit of a rocky relationship. Saul tried to kill David and really was feeling threatened by David. Yet, David was best friends with Saul's um, son. And so David tells Jonathan that when he's king, he will bless his family line. And so one day, Saul and Jonathan go to battle, and they are both killed in battle. It's this tragic day, but for no one more than Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's five-year-old son. And so he's just lost his grandfather and his father the same day, and in in a moment of panic, the woman taking care of him picks him up and runs, and in the process, she drops him, and he's crippled and he's lame for the rest of his life, unable to walk. And so time passes, and David remembers his covenant with Jonathan. In verse 1, it says, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I can show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so someone remembers Mephibosheth. Uh, He's been off hiding with somebody. Uh, He's poor. He doesn't have a place to call his own. And he's probably fearful of his life. Because in that day and age, it was very custom for the new king to kill off the rest of the family line from the previous king, because that would be considered a threat to the throne. And so someone remembers Mephibosheth, and David says, bring him to me. Verse six, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It doesn't matter to David what Mephibosheth had to bring. It doesn't matter that he needed physically brought to the table. It didn't matter that he had nothing to offer or that he was considered an enemy. This is our story. This is the gospel story. I love that we can look throughout the Old Testament and see these glimpses of our story and Jesus um, casting forth our mind. And so we, have, we are Mephibosheth. We have nothing to offer We're physically unable to get to God. And yet he's kind and he's generous and he brings us to his table, giving us riches beyond what we can imagine in Christ, bringing relationship. And so we come to the communion table undeserving as this receiver of grace and we look around at the people next to us And we just see a bunch of little Mephibosheths taking communion. All equal. Nobody's deserving more than another. No one's more loved. Completely equal. And it's humbling. (laughs) And we also know that God loves humility. Austin read that verse. He gives grace to the humble. And he opposes the proud. I think about Moses and Uh, In Numbers 12, 3, it says, he was the most humble man in all the earth. It's ironic because he wrote that about himself, right? (laughs) But it's God's word, and so we know it's true. And yet Moses got to speak face-to-face with God in a way that nobody else could because of his humility. And so sometimes I think we like to be— we humble ourselves so that we can be exalted. Anybody else ever wanted that? It says that he will exalt those that are humble, and so it's like, oh yeah, but we realize that's pride because we're thinking about ourselves and what we get out of it. The greatest, Francis Chan says, the greatest gift of humility is intimacy with God, and Moses shows us that. And so our humility or lack thereof affects our relationship with the Lord and it affects our relationship with each other. Maybe for some of you, the main thing that's been hindering your relationships uh, here in the now is your pride, your lack of humility. And you can look back and see this trail of carnage of relationships because of it. Because how are we going to treat others um, in a way that initiates unity if we are not so aware of how God has treated us? How will we show grace to those who don't deserve it if we're not so aware that God has shown grace to us when we don't deserve it? How will we be patient or kind or forgiving or generous if we don't see that God has done all of those things for us first? And so, if unity is the goal and humility is the method, and it's how we will accomplish it, how will we measure if we're hitting it? How will we measure if we're accomplishing the goal? Love is the outcome. Unity is the goal. Humility is the method. Love is the outcome. Turn to Philippians 2, 1 through 10 is what we're going to go through. I think this really ties it all together for us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's talking about this unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Jesus is always our example. And we see this actionable love come from his humility. He stepped out of heaven where he was getting the glory that he deserved. And he left and he died on the cross for you and for me. And there's no greater love. It's never been more uh, perfectly demonstrated than him dying on the cross. And so what does that mean for us? Christian literally means little Christ, right? And so we are to be imitators of him. Paul says in Romans that we are to be living sacrifices. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake was died, sake died and was raised. Are you getting this? We are supposed to love the way that he has loved us. I find it so interesting, and I've I've never thought of this before. Maybe you guys have. But 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about uh, the Lord's Supper, and he recounts Jesus explaining it. And he talks about how, well, Jesus takes, takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he lifts it, and he says, this is my body. And it's this representation, it's, it's tying us forward to Jesus dying on the cross, this act of love that we just talked about. And then just a chapter later, Paul's talking about the church. And what does he say we are? The body. The representation of Jesus dying on the cross and the church are the same word. And so what if that's on purpose. I have to believe that it is, right? What if we, the church, are supposed to be a demonstration of Christ's love to the world in the same way that dying on the cross was Christ's demonstration of love for us? What a privilege and a purpose we have in that. And so we take the elements, the bread and the juice, and we're reminded that my life is not my own. It's been purchased at a high cost. And so we say, God, am I loving others the way that you have loved me? You gave everything for me and I deserved none of it. Who can I give everything to? Who can I pour out my life for? Who can I forgive? Who can I invite to this table? And so, do me a favor, look around the room. Next to you, in front of you, behind you. These people are all co heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Him. Because we're related to Jesus, because we're called sons and daughters of God, we are related to each other. We're brothers and sisters. And the agape love that we see from Jesus should be the love that we carry out to each other and to the world. And so as we take communion together this morning, let's focus on Jesus. Let's have this united same mind. So grateful for what he's done. And let it have its effect on you. Let it humble you so that we can walk humbly. And so that we can be more effective in our love for each other and for the world. We're going to take communion now. And so um, I love that we did it together last week. And so we're going to do that again this week. And so if you have made Jesus your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to come. Come get, there's two cups. Um, One has the bread, one has the juice. Take it back to your seat. Think about what Jesus has done for you cast your mind back to the cross and forward to the hope of heaven ask him for his presence right now and maybe just take a second to ask him if there's any way off in you that has been causing disunity in the body maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from someone maybe you need to forgive someone But look around the room, and and as we take it together, let's just remind ourselves that it's more than just me. God, how can you help me love others? So we'll take a couple minutes to do that, and then me and Austin will come back up and close us.
0: Grab our bread, not your bread. Our bread. Mm-hmm. Lord, we we thank you for your body, and we thank you for your demonstration of your love towards us. God, we we today especially approach uh, approach the communion table. We approach this time together and ask that uh, a spirit of humility would fall in this room for every single one of us. God, would we not fall into humility in some sort of self-focused way God where we're either looking at our own shortcomings or we're looking at our own errors God but will we just see our humility in the way that you see it in the way that you have given your body and your blood for us you have qualified us you have called us God we love you and we are grateful for your sacrifice and so we eat this together take the, our juice. God, we just thank you for, we thank you for the washing of our sin that was once like scarlet and is now white as snow because of your blood. We thank you that you have given us this moment um, to continue to press on in the, in the age of grace that we live in, to to try and love people well, to love our brothers and sisters in this room well, and to love the world well, God. We just ask that you would uh, sustain us and would you keep compelling us to move forward uh, for your kingdom's sake. And so uh, we take this juice and we drink it together. Jesus, we love you. And we are grateful for your sacrifice for us. I pray that our church would be marked in a distinct way coming out of this week, uh, that we'd be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of another, that we wouldn't think too highly of ourselves and that we would lift others up in a way that, that sees them, that loves them, that cares for them, and that we would bring your love into the world that we're living in, Jesus. We're so grateful for you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.